All right, good morning. I guess we can get started. It's officially 10 o'clock. It's officially the fall semester at Otter Creek. Uh, welcome to The Way It Was Written. Uh, you'll see myself, Becca, raise your hand, Becca, and Randall are going to teach. Uh, this actually is plotted to go two semesters. Because what we want to do is, this is a, a survey of the, of the New Testament, but we want to do it in the order that the books were written. Because a lot of times we, we start with the Gospels, and we think, why is Paul writing all this stuff? You just go back and read the Gospel. Let me tell you that story. So what we're going to do is study the books in the order that they were written, so you can get a better idea of what the early church was going through, and kind of the uh, situation around this book. And uh, this is our, my introduction of goals. As uh, Randall asked me, is that the goal for the New Testament or the goal for this class? <laughs> That's a goal for this class. There's one goal for the New Test. Make your disciple. All right. uh, so that's easy. So we want to place the New Testament in the culture of the first century. We're going to talk a little bit about government, about religion, about language, philosophy. Uh, we, you have to get into slavery. You have to get into families and adoption. Because that's the culture that the New Testament church was birthed into. Uh, we're going to talk about the authors, the audience, to whom the books were written. When were they written? Kind of the theme and the why. Why do we think the Holy Spirit moved this author to write this book? Uh, because in order to really understand the books, you have to understand what they meant to the people to whom the letter was written. How did they interpret it so we understand how to interpret it? A uh, little timeline. Uh, this is kind of the order. If you look online, there are probably, I don't know, a thousand different New Testament timelines, maybe more. Uh, there are people that will tell you the New Testament was written in the 4 and 500 uh, AD. Uh, there are, we're going to go with the concept that was actually written by the people who we think it was written by. Uh, the church starts, by the way, about 30 AD. I know everyone says 33, you know, everyone can get the t-shirt that says that, the little sticker, 33 AD. Uh, Dionysus is the guy who came up with the AD BC in 538 AD. He couldn't count. He was a monk. Uh, he miscounted. So Jesus was actually born, was actually born about 4 BC. Because, uh, and the other concept, there was no zero in those days, so there is no year zero. Uh, and so Dionysus miscounted backwards, and so he put Jesus being born at zero, but we know Herod the Great dies in 4 BC. And as we get into the Jesus story, Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus, so therefore we know Jesus was around when Herod was around. So Jesus was really born probably in 4 BC. Uh, so the church actually starts somewhere around 30. 29 to 30 is when the church actually starts. Uh, Book of Acts, first 12 chapters, it's, it's in Jerusalem. Uh, and then you see it expanding to Samaria. Uh, then it expands a little bit to the Gentiles. But the first 20 years, the church is primarily Jewish. And so... It's not until Paul starts making his missionary journeys, which we'll get into as 
And so we will follow the missionary journeys as Paul is doing them and writing the books. Uh, he has, so in 47 to 50, Paul's first journey, 51 to 54, the second journey. Uh, and then you'll start seeing the books showing up. You'll notice the first Gospels don't show up until Galatians, James, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, and probably Corinthians, they're already written. So the, the first Gospels don't show up until 25 years after the start of the church. So they were not reading the Gospels in church on Sunday morning, or Sunday night, or Saturday night. We'll talk about when everyone met later. So they weren't really uh, reading a lot of that. In fact, you look, it's almost 50, it's almost 20 years before the first of anything is written. So we'll talk about that as we get to these books of why they were written and who they were written. And so uh, you'll see the vast majority of everything is written by before 68. Uh, we, we know that because Peter and Paul are both dead by then. Uh, John, the last part of the bike and the last part of this class is all John. Uh, John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in Revelation, he writes those all 30 years after everyone else. Uh, and it's, it is interesting that John is the last apostle to live. James, his brother, is the first apostle to die. And they're separated. Uh, James dies probably somewhere in here, 31, 32. John dies in probably 80, 95. Very interesting that you know, two brothers who are both apostles separated by 60 years. So that's kind of the timeline we're, we're, we're looking at. And here's a, to put the church in the culture that it was in. Uh, because the church does not grow in a vacuum. It, it's uh, greatly influenced by the culture around it. And a lot of the letters are written from Peter, Paul, James, Jude, to John, to the church saying, wait a minute, you're in this culture, but you're not of this culture. Here's, what you, here's how you need to react and interact with your culture. Uh, and uh, to go back to this, for all those who slept through history in the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th grade, uh, we have Roman emperors, Tiberius, you have Caligula, Claudius, but for our story, it's the most important part of who's the governor of Judea. Uh, you have Pontius Pilate, who you'll remember from the Jesus story, is the guy who crucifies Jesus. Uh, you go through here, a few other guys. Uh, in the book of Acts, Felix and Festus show up because Felix is the one who arrests Paul. Festus is the one that ends up sending him to Rome. But you can see this timeline of where, uh, kind of where the books were written, things that go on in history around there. The Great Fire of Rome occurs in 64. Nero, so if you remember your history, Nero was the emperor. He, by the way, did not fiddle while Rome burnt. Uh, that was written by the guys who didn't like Nero. They wanted to make, sure, make him look... Politics is the same today, yesterday, yeah. 2,000 years ago. After Nero, the guys who wanted Nero out of office <coughs> put the story out that Nero was fiddling while Rome burned. He wasn't. He was trying to put the fire out. Uh, he just is, he wasn't a good fireman. Uh, and then you have uh, Vespasian. Did he actually have a fiddle? What? Did he actually have a fiddle? Well, he, he was known to play an instrument, but 
Yeah, and so the, so that literally you have it's a political statement of him sitting up on uh, uh, what's the name of the hill? Portica. Portica, that middling as Rome is burning around him. The emperor is not doing that, you know, because a if his thing catches on fire, he is going to burn to death. So he is not sitting on top of his portico fiddling while Rome is burning. He's trying to put the fire out. But there are a lot of people that did not like the emperor. To be emperor in the Roman era, you had to step over a lot of dead bodies. It was not a, it was not a job for the faint of heart. Uh, and then uh, you also did, as you'll notice, uh, a lot of the emperors did not. There's actually, right in here, there's actually three emperors in the same year. Uh, if you had enemies and your enemies had enough money, your reign was very short. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, so this kind of gives you a slide of what's going on in the greater world as the church is growing. Uh, and then in here is where Paul is making his missionary journeys and when the, when the church is getting established in Rome. Uh, for the church, it's very important to be established in Rome because everything in the Roman Empire revolves through Rome. So once the church gets established there, it's where all the money flows, it's where all the power is. And you'll see the church grow once it's in Rome, which is right in here. Uh, and you can, you can tell how long, how Caligula was not a popular emperor, he only lasted a very long, short amount of time, uh, and made enough enemies that the uh, Praetorian Guard had a little change of uh, ruler. All right, here's the, at the time of the church, here's, here's the Roman Empire. Now, if you're like me when you grew up, we all thought Jerusalem, right? In the Christian era, Jerusalem is the center of the world. Uh, that, you know, everything in Christianity revolves around Jerusalem. Uh, in reality, politically, uh, Jerusalem is literally the armpit of the Roman Empire. Uh, it's not even on this map. It's right here at the top of this. Actually, this is the Dead Sea. At the top of that lake is where Jerusalem's at. Uh, this is during Pax Romana when the Rome conquered everything and controlled pretty much most of the what was the known world at the time uh, Judea became part of the Roman uh, to set the stage for the birth of the church Judea became part of Rome because the Sadducees and the Pharisees could not get along Julius Caesar uh, marched. Julius Caesar conquered all this, and he conquered this. And that's why he became the first emperor. After conquering Egypt, he sails home from Rome to crown himself essentially dictator. He sends the army. There's a road that runs up here uh, to Antioch, Syria, and then they're going to take a boat over. As the army is walking by, marching by Judea, the Romans don't care about Judea at all. There's nothing in Judea they want. There's no gold. There's not a lot of silver. It's not on a major trade route. The Jews are a pain in the butt to deal with because they're constantly fighting and rebelling. As the army's marching by, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are fighting over who controls the temple. So the Sadducees hear the Romans are marching by, so they send a message down and say, hey, can you come and kill all the Pharisees so we can control the temple? 
And the Roman general, being a Roman, says, what do you pay me? And they said, we'll give you one ton of gold, six tons of silver. And if you're, if you're not strong enough and you're hiring a bully to get rid of your enemy, what's the bully going to do? He's going to take all your stuff. And that's exactly what he does. So the general literally is marching up here, stops his troops, goes to Jerusalem, conquers Jerusalem, takes everybody's gold. Uh, and more than more, he got figures. If you got a ton of gold and six tons of silver, you can give me. You got more, and they did. So he made Judea a Roman province, literally as a drive-by. He just stopped, took everything out, kicked all the, uh, put a Roman ruler in charge, and went back to Rome. The Roman ruler they picked was a guy you know from the Bible, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was was grew up in Rome. His father was the king of this area just south of Judea. He was a Roman ally. He fought with Caesar in Egypt. And so the way the, way the Romans did uh, their territories is they would put a ruler in and they'd take his oldest son and take him to Rome as a hostage. So Herod the Great grew up with Julius Caesar's children. So when they conquered Judea, and the, the Herods were, the Jews had conquered the Indians about 100 years before and forcibly converted them all to Judaism. Uh, that is, by the way, not the way to make converts in life. Their thing was become Jews, get circumcised, or we're going to kill you all. So they all, so Herod can remember everyone being forcibly circumcised. He's now in Rome. Caesar comes to him and says, I want to make you ruler of the Jews. Herod hates the Jews. And he jumps at the chance. Yes, I get back for all the stuff that my dad and my granddad. So he becomes the ruler of Judea and Galilee. Uh, and so we'll see that in the Bible story as we go through, especially in the Gospels and in Acts. Uh, he is a great and terrible leader at the same time. He is the greatest builder, aqueducts. He builds the temple that Jesus worships at. Uh, he builds fortresses around. He does water supplies. He's a great thing. He also kills people at a drop of a hat. We know that he killed at least eight of his own sons because they were. he thought they were plotting against him. And so you have him executed. He's a nice guy. You don't want to go home for Christmas. Uh, so he becomes, and so he is the leader of Judea and Galilee while the start, during the start of the church. And then he dies and his children take over. Uh, in Judea, he has four sons. He splits his kingdom into four parts once he dies. One of his sons is so bad, Archelaus, who gets Jerusalem and Judea. He is so bad that the Romans remove him as ruler. Uh, just to throw you in some of the culture, in the 10 years Archelaus rules from 4 BC to 6 AD, he is the, uh, the governor of Judea. There are five armed rebellions uh, who, people who claim to be the Messiah, who are coming to throw the, the, the Romans out. So that throws that culture. So 
When Jesus comes and cleanses the Messiah, it's not like he's the first guy that ever did that. There are, in that ten years, there are five. And there are, uh, Archelaus is actually back in Rome on the fifth one. Because he grew up with Tiberius, who is now, or Augustus, who is now emperor. So he's back saying, hey, uh, for the Game of Thrones fans, he goes, I'm a king. My brothers are kings. I don't want to be a king. I want to be the king. I want you to promote me over all my brothers and make me just like my dad was. And while he's there, there's a guy named Quinterus who's in the, we'll see, is actually in the by in Matthew, talking about when Jesus is born. Quinterus is the uh, governor of Syria, lives in Antioch. He is a famous general. He, uh, so Archelaus is gone. There's a rebellion that almost overthrows Judea. Archelaus, or uh, Sir Quinos has to come down from Syria with all the Roman legions and put down the rebellion. And what he does is writes a letter to the emperor, who is also one of his friends, and says, hey, this is the fifth time I've had to come down in ten years. You need to get rid of Archelaus. And so he does. The emperor does. Uh, the Roman Empire is very, uh, your retirement plan is not great. Uh, they just cut your head off and you're done. Uh, and so that's what happens to Archelaus, and they appoint a governor. The governor they appoint is Pontius Pilate, who shows up in the Gospels and then into Acts. So that's how Herod is no longer in charge of Judea when you have a Roman governor instead. But that sets up all this contrasting and conflicting cultures in and around Jerusalem for when Jesus comes and starts the church. <clears throat> All right. Government's really easy. It's an empire. There are two rules in the Roman Empire. Pay your taxes. If you do not, you become a slave. Really easy. They don't have payment plans. Well, they do have a payment plan, but it has to be if you go and work in the, in the uh, salt mines. Uh, do not rebel. If you rebel, you will die. Uh, the store, uh, around five miles from Nazareth is a town called Sephora, Sephora, depends on the Greek or Latin. Uh, just before the time of Jesus, uh, Joseph probably helped build the city. Uh, when Herod the Great dies in 4 BC, another Simon, Simon, very common name, decides he is the Messiah. I'm going to start a rebellion. And so what I'm going to do with Sephora is a... Uh, regional uh, center for the Romans. It's where they collect the taxes. So he gets a bunch of soldiers, goes in, and overthrows and kills all the Romans in the sport. It's just a small detachment. It's, and he says, uh, just like what he is, you know, we're going to raise the flag, everyone's going to run, come to me, and we're going to have this great rebellion, and we're going to overthrow the Roman government. Does not happen. Uh, and so, just to show you how Rome, Rome does, uh, they get the legions together, they march down the circle of the city. They said, all right, guys, you've got a choice. You rebelled, you're going to die. The question is, do you want to die easy? Do you want to die hard? Uh, everyone who's male over the age of 15, you're going to die because you rebel against Rome. If you surrender, we'll cut your head off and you'll die quick. If you don't, we're going to crucify you. All the women and children in the city, you're all going to be slaves. The guy said, no, we're not surrendering. Rome wins. Uh, so this is like 
And we're talking in 2 BC. Four miles from where Jesus in Nazareth really grows up. The Romans raise the city. It's their own city. They knock all the walls down. They burn everything. They take all the women and children, pay for slavery. All the men that are left, they crucify all the way around the city. Then they put a guard on them and say, nobody's taking the bodies down. They stay up till they rot. And so we know writings from the time that you could smell that miles away. So you know when Jesus was growing up in Nazareth, every mom knew that story. That's what happens when you're crucified in the Roman Empire. So they left, they left the bodies up to rot at least 60 days until all the bodies fell off the crosses. Then they allowed them to bury them. Uh, that's Roman justice. The Romans are not subtle. You mess with Rome, you die. All right, same thing, government that you're seeing is, you know, you have the emperor in the Senate, uh, you have governors in the area, you have mayors for the town. So when we get to different stories, you'll see Paul and Peter and James and the church interact with these different individuals. And uh, because Paul ends up, when he gets arrested, he appeals to the emperor, which means he's actually going to be tried in front of the emperor because he's a Roman citizen. Uh, You'll meet the the mayors of the town because that's the guys who originally arrest a lot of the uh, apostles. In the book of Acts, uh, when Paul is beaten in Thessalonica, I can't remember, Philippi, Philippi, Philippian jailer, uh, the mayor of the town has an arrested beaten. Uh, and then he finds out he's a Roman citizen. Bad news, because the mayor of the town is not a Roman citizen. Uh, and so that basically, if Paul wants, he can complain to the Roman detachment, and the mayor of the town gets the Roman retirement plan at that point, which is they'll just come chop his head off because you beat a Roman citizen. Uh, so you'll see a lot of this rolled, the culture that's rolled in. Uh, just for fun, I found this guy, guy with his PhD thesis on what the economics of the Roman Empire were. Uh, but I think it's really interesting because you can see the average worker here, uh, th- this is roughly denarii. So when someone says a denarius is what they made a day, this is where this comes from. So the average worker made about 304 denarii a year. If you're a senator, 150,000 a year. If you're a legion commander, 70,000 a year. If you're just a regular soldier, you make about what the average wage is. But the average soldiers also got fed every day. If you're an average worker, you may not get fed. You have to go find your own food. And you also know farm workers and slaves make some. I don't, we're into slavery in a minute. Slaves actually got paid, sort of. Uh, so this is where the church starts, in this group right here. Uh, and the tradesmen, the slaves, the farm workers. And then there are a few rich people, because we know in Corinthians and we know in James, they talk about, wait a minute, if you're rich and you're dealing with the poor, so there's a huge difference in economics of if you're rich or you're poor. There, there's no middle class, as you notice. You're either really, really rich or you're poor. There's nothing in between. And so the church starts in this group with some of these. Uh, 
And also, when you get to that story in the Gospels, when the legion commander comes to Jesus to raise his slave, right. this is the guy we're talking about right here. Very, very, very powerful individual. There's only 50 of them in the entire Roman Empire. So, when that guy comes to see Jesus, that's a really, really, that's, that's roughly equivalent to the president of a country coming to see Jesus. The president showing up to ask a, to ask a favor of Jesus. So that gives you. We kind of miss that because we don't understand. But that's literally like the president of Mexico coming to see Jesus and say, "Hey, can you do me a favor?" Uh, there's only 50 of these guys. Very important. Very powerful. Important people. So is that 55 million people in the whole Roman Empire? Yes, that's the thought of at the time. About in the mid 100s, uh, the mid first century, about 55 million people are uh, in, they think that's the population. You'll notice how many people are farm workers or slaves. Uh, a lot. So, uh, like I said, when you talk about police, when Jesus gets arrested and stuff, you talk about who, the, who are the police. There are city police, but they're very limited in size. You can only throw people in jail. That's why Paul gets thrown in jail in Philippi. The Romans, if the Romans arrest you, they can kill you. Again, the Romans are in charge. And they have one rule, don't rebel or die. So if you get arrested, they're essentially saying you're rebelling, we can kill you. Uh, there's only about 50 legions. Uh, each is it's, the Roman legions are very important because it's a great career. And when you retire, if you weren't a citizen, you become a citizen. You re and your family becomes citizens. Really important to be a Roman citizen, as we see when Paul goes around. Very, being a Roman citizen is the big thing in Rome. Uh, but you give it 6,000 men, you enlist for 25 years at age 15. Uh, and if you make 25 years through, you retire. You generally retire where they're at. Uh, we know, like, the Romans had a sense of humor. The, the legion that was assigned to Jerusalem uh, is the 10th legion. Their uh, symbol, the flag that they marched under, was the pig. Which is hilarious if you think about the, the Jews who, pigs are unclean, right? Somehow, the one Roman legion that picked the pig is their motto is assigned to Jerusalem. I don't think that occurred by accident. Uh, and so actually, if, if, when they do archaeology, you'll see little etchings of pigs and boars, and that's almost always soldiers from the Temple Legion who are based in, in Jerusalem. Because they, they know the Jews hated pigs, and so they just put pigs everywhere as graffiti. Uh, you know, because you think you start when you're 15 when you enlist. Yeah. What's an 18-year-old in guard duty going to do when he's bored? <laughs> I'm going to throw a little graffiti up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. They, they did not like the 10th Legion. I mean, honestly, I was like, okay, that would actually be a reason the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. they, 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 their motto, they had a pig. They marched under a pig head. And, and there's uh, graffiti all over Rome of little pigs you know, with, with the X. Roman X for the 10th. So uh, what, what's the life expectancy of the average male? 
in this time. Life expectancy, well, are you, are you, which part of the economic spectrum are you on? Uh, life I'm talking about Roman legion. 25 years at least. Oh, I bet not many people made it. They, they were all right, because this is Pax Romanica. There's not a lot of wars going on. During the wars, yeah, your life expectancy wasn't great. Right. Uh, but this is after the Gallic Wars, after the Egyptian Wars. So there was a decent chance you would make it to retirement. But your your entire family lived with you. They put the Roman legions where they were stationed, so their families would move with them at the garrison. So you would grow up there, and they'd recruit new members from that area. So it was a way, if you're non-Roman, that you gain Roman citizenship by enlisting in the legion, serving your 25 years, and getting out. Uh, but they, when the legions moved, is when, when there were trouble, they'd call the legions. And then the legions got there, they just destroyed everything. Their, their kind of philosophy is, we'll, we'll destroy it, we'll just build it back. Uh, and we'll see this. We'll see this in 1870 when they attack Rome, when they attack uh, uh, Jerusalem. Uh, they don't leave anything when they're done. Uh, Rome, population of about a million people, biggest city on earth at the time. Uh, the entire police is the Praetorian Guard, which is a double legion of 12,000 men. Uh, you really want to be a Praetorian. You got paid three times what everyone else did. Uh, and you get to live in Rome. But the reason that they're in their double, le double legion in Rome is the Romans remember, remember Spartacus. Somewhere between 20 and 60% of the million people in Rome are slaves. Uh, so they are terrified of slave rebellions. Uh, Spartacus, if you remember the movie of Tony uh, Curtis, yes, fairly, is fairly accurate. Uh, he almost overthrew the Roman Empire as a slave. Uh, and so they're, they're terrified. So they have this legion. Uh, and then they also, their also job is to uh, protect the king. We know Paul actually converts a large number of the Praetorian Guard at some point. Uh, because when he's arrested, he lives there. Uh, the Praetorian Guard learns about the time that we're talking about here, the 50s, 60s, that they started out as emperor protectors, they became the kingmakers. They, they realized that there's one emperor and there's 12,000 of them. So if you paid the legion commander enough, you could become emperor. Uh, the other guy would have Roman retirement, he would have a small problem, and next thing you know, there's a new emperor. And that happened a lot, especially in the year of the three emperors. That's what happens, is they finally settle on someone they like. So you really, if you're the emperor, you really want to make the Praetorian Guard happy. They're the only police force in Rome, and they're the guys that are protecting your life, and to put a new emperor in. All right, religion. The Romans stole everything Greek. The Romans wanted to be Greek from a religious standpoint. They literally stole everything in Greek. All the Roman gods are Greek gods with new names. Uh, they just renamed them. And most importantly for the Roman Empire, they took all the temples and took the money. Uh, so that's part of how it makes Rome rich, is that everyone sacrificed the, the gods, all that ends up in the governor's pocket, which then goes to the emperor's pocket. Uh, so when you think, think all that stuff you learned about Greek mythology and Greek gods, the Romans just had the same gods. They just changed their name. Language. Uh, the official language is Latin. The only person who speaks Latin are the Romans 
the Roman citizens in Rome. Uh, virtually the entire world speaks Greek. Uh, and so when the Romans actually put pronouncements out, they put them out in Greek. The Bible is written in Greek, except Matthew may have been written in Aramaic first and then translated to Greek. Uh, but it's pretty much, everyone spoke Greek. So if you spoke Greek, you could go throughout the empire pretty easily. Everyone spoke their local tongue, whatever the, the tribal tongue is, but they also spoke Greek. Well, clarify that with Jesus. With, with what Jesus spoke. Yeah. Well, that's what Jesus spoke probably my bet is Jesus spoke three or four languages. The official language is Latin. Because when Jesus gets crucified, they put the thing over his name in several languages so that everyone can read it. The official pronouncement's in Latin. Uh, Hebrew. Hebrew was not really a live language at that time. The hardcore guys in Judea spoke it. Uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees spoke Well, they read it. How much they actually spoke is probably not, is not understandable. Because we know most people spoke Greek. In fact, the, uh, the Jews translated the Old Testament into Greek about 150 years before this. Because so many of the Jewish people did not speak Hebrew, they couldn't read the Old Testament. So they translated it into Greek that everybody read. That's uh, the Septuagint. Uh, in the area we're looking at, the northern part around Syria and northern Galilee, they spoke Syriac. They spoke Greek and they spoke Syriac. Where Jesus is at in Galilee is a mixed area. Uh, the people in the south spoke Aramaic. So Jesus probably spoke Aramaic as his primary tongue. He probably spoke Syriac because he's in a border area. He spoke Greek. Uh, and he probably spoke Hebrew. Uh, so when you see Jesus talking in the New Testament, what he, how he is speaking depends on his audience. If he's down in and around Jerusalem, he's probably speaking Aramaic. If he's up in Galilee, where you have lots of people of different mixes, he's speaking Greek or he's speaking Syriac. Uh, when, when he you know, goes before the Sanhedrin, he's almost assured he's speaking Greek. Because the, the, uh, the, the Sadducees, who were the power, almost spoke exclusively Greek. Because they saw that as the most sophisticated of languages. In fact, a lot of the Sadducees who ran the temple at this time took Greek names. Uh, instead, instead, Hebrew names had Greek names. Uh, and so, so what we see is, you know, when we read the Bible, we say, well, everyone's speaking English. They're doing pretty good going through here. You're actually speaking multiple languages when you go through all these stories. When Paul starts traveling, I mean, all bets are off when he gets to wherever he's going of what the primary language is. Uh, but he's probably speaking Greek to most of them because that's uh, the most commonly understood language. And like I said, the Bible's written in Greek other than Aramaic, right? Other than Aramaic, probably from Matthew, which has been soon translated to Greek. All right, Eastern and Western writing styles. We grow up, our schools in America were Greek. Uh, part of it because 
let's do this right here. How many of you went, when you did, when you took English, you wrote a, a paper, you did an intro, you did point A, paragraph one, point B, paragraph two, point C, paragraph three, and a conclusion. How many got taught that in school? That's Greek. Greek is linear and is logical. Aramaic and Syriac are circular. They are not linear languages. They are not linear thought. So a, the way they kind of write is point A, point B, your conclusion, point B, then point A. Uh, it's called chiasmic because it looks like an X or called a sandwich. So the most important part is right in the middle. So when you read the New Testament, sometimes you have to understand, or is, is he thinking Greek? Is he thinking Aramaic? A lot of Jesus' stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke are in Aramaic form. The middle is the most important part. And so if you, if you interpret the Greek, sometimes you come up with conclusions that aren't exactly the same as what they were aiming at. And that's, and that's when you get into the study, they'll talk but a lot of the research and talk will talk about that. Uh, philosophy, I'll skip that. Cynicism, skepticism, hedonism, stoicism were the main Greek philosophies. The Romans stole everything Greek. So these were Roman philosophies as well. Uh, and so when Paul writes, especially when Paul writes, he's running into these different philosophies locally. And so some of his letters will be talking about how you deal in a society that's primarily one of these. All right, so how about slavery in the empire? Uh, 20 to 60% of the Roman Empire, the low estimate is 20% of the Roman Empire was slave. The high estimate is 60%. Uh, 55 million people were slaves. A slave was very common. When we, our issue, when we think of slavery, we think of what slavery was like in the United States in the 1860s. That's not how slavery ran in Rome. Uh, what we have here is called chattel slavery, where your property is a big racial basis of your slavery, and it's, it's split. If you're a slave, you're a slave. You slave your whole life, you work for your master, that's all you do. Roman slavery was markedly different. Uh, we'll, call it, we'll call it open slavery. It's very possible to get your freedom from that slave. Uh, it was non-racial. If you, if you were in debt and you couldn't pay your debts, you went to slavery. You're a Roman citizen, you went to slavery. It didn't matter. Uh, and it's not exclusive work. It's very more, it's much more about family and, and your, your tribe that you're in. So, uh, for instance, doctors in the first century were primarily slaves. Now, you, you would set up a practice and you would see people and they would pay you if they weren't part of your family. But when your family came to you, you just took care of them. You were part, that was part of the, the, the people that owned you. You just took care of them. Uh, Luke, who writes Luke and Acts, is a good possibility he was a slave at some point in his life where he learned uh, his physician training. Uh, in fact, that's one theory of why he writes what he writes, because he was told to do it. Uh, the biggest thing, there's five levels of slavery. Uh, you have household or domestic slaves. These guys are part of your family. Cicero, the great Roman writer, uh, his, most of his books were written by his, his number one slave, who was also his property manager, who was also in charge of his young children. Uh, 
So, and he also, his, he would, Cicero would say was his best friend of his life, was his slave that he grew up with. So it, it's very hard for us because we don't understand that slavery. Uh, you're, all the, the women that would raise your, your nannies were your slaves. They would, they would spend their entire life with you raising your children, and they would raise your children's children. So that was, uh, we, we have writings from Rome at the time that says, when you walked around Rome, you couldn't tell the freemen from the slaves. They all dressed the same. Uh, and so, it, especially the household domestic slaves. Imperial, uh, the fire department in Rome were slaves. The deal was, uh, if you became a fireman, you served for 20 years. They housed you and they fed you. At the end of 20 years, if you survived, assuming it's a fireman, you know, you put fire out with hand buckets, uh, you became a Roman citizen, and all your children and wives became Roman citizens after 20 years. But you were a slave for 20 years. Uh, urban crafts and services were slaves, certain kind of third generation. A lot of people, blacks, a lot of blacksmiths were slaves. They belonged to somebody, but they would set up a blacksmith shop, and they could earn money. There are, there's lots of stories of slaves owning slaves in Rome, which is, in our, in our way we think slaves is very difficult to understand. But like, if you made enough money as a blacksmith, you hire you. There were no servants. You just you just bought slaves. So you just buy a slave to help you run your blacksmith shop. And if you made enough money, you could buy your own freedom. And that happened a lot. Agriculture. All the farms in Rome were basically run by slaves. In fact, once you get outside of the city of Rome, the farms in Italy were almost all slaves. There were slaves running the farm, and then the slaves actually doing the work. So you had a great. Uh, grades of slaves there. The worst place to be was mining. If you were a criminal and you were a slave, they sent you to mines. Average life expectancy was less than a year. So that's how you got rid of people in Rome. If you were a troublemaker, you got sent to the mines. They would get some gold or salt out of you and then you would die. Uh, so that's kind of how slavery is. Uh, just to give you a price, remember average person makes about a denarius a day. An educated Greek who could read and write was worth, at the time of Jesus, 6,000 denarii in the slave market. So it wasn't like you're buying, you know, well, I'm going to spend a little bit and get a slave. No. This is 6,000 days of work for the average person to buy a slave. Uh, Augustus, who is emperor, issues a 2% tax on all slave transactions. He tax money, you know, like every other government, he tax money. The first year he put in, there were 250,000 sales in the Roman Empire that year. Uh, that kind of gives you the scale of what slavery was like. And the church, remember when the church starts, it is slaves are a huge part of church members. That kind of tells you where you're at. But who gets that money? Oh, the emperor. No. Like if you're buying a slave for 6,000. Well, whoever, you, you sell, whoever sells it goes out. But how did they? How did he get that? How did he, how did you get uh, slaves? Yeah, uh, right there. War. Caesar, uh, when he conquers Gaul, uh, brought. I'm his setup man. <laughs> Caesar conquered Gaul as France. He brings a million slaves back to Rome during the Gallic Wars. In fact, the slave owners, the guys who sell slaves. Uh, complained that he's too successful. He pushes the price of slaves down 
because he, always, he saturates the market. He brings a million back in a 10-year period. Uh, if you're in debt, you got sent to slavery. Uh, childbirth, if you were born a slave, if your mother was a slave, you were born a slave. Now, you could, you could buy your freedom, but you were slaves. So that's basically where all the slaves came from. And the, and the Romans were really good soldiers, and they conquered a lot of people. So, you know, a million people. When they conquered Egypt, they have a bunch of slaves. Uh, so it's a very, that's where all the slaves came from. And that's where the church gets its start, is in these people in the Roman Empire. When, when Paul refers to himself as a slave, he uses the word doulos, which means bondservant, which means I, so, I, I, I see what it means to be a slave under you, and I, li I don't want to be free. Right. I want to be a bondservant. So that's what he's talking about with Jesus. I want to be, I've sold myself, myself to you. Yes. All right. Uh, Adoption is the other concept we'll get to in two seconds here. Very widespread in the Roman Empire. Uh, it basically cemented clan ties. The interesting thing was, you would, as a rich person, you would pick your heir. It's almost rarely your own children. Uh, Julius Caesar, he's followed by Augustus. Augustus is his great nephew. So he picks Augustus and says, tells everyone he's my heir. Because what they wanted was they wanted the clan and the family to stay powerful. And so when you see Paul saying, I'm an adopted, I'm an adopted son, or he talks about adoption, this is what he's talking about, is that I'm adopted as the heir. We think of adoption as, you know, we've gone to we're, we're saving four children. In the Roman Empire, adoption was about, about power. Who is going to inherit the power? And so that's the concept of adoption in the New Testament. Is I am the when Jesus when Paul says I am the heir of Jesus, and Jesus is the heir of the Son of God. What you're saying is I'm going to inherit everything God has. That's what Paul is saying. So when you think about it that way, it's like wow, that's a very God has everything. He's making me his heir. That's what Paul, when, they, when they write their test about adoption, that's what they're talking about. All right, this is also, here's our kind of our schedule uh, for the next, okay, we've already changed it. But, uh, uh, this is a real easy way to read through the New Testament. We're going to do a book a week. Uh, when you're doing uh, Philippians, or Philemon, that's a really easy week, 28 verses. When you do Matt, Matthew and John, that's going to be a long week. But you can read just follow along book a week. So here, intro this week, we do we're doing it in chronological order they're written. So we do James next week. I'm gonna do that. I'm actually gonna do Galatians. Then first and second Thessalonians, Becca's gonna do, uh, Randall's gonna do the book of Mark, the first of the gospels written twenty years after the start of the church. Did I volunteer for that? Yep, yes you did. You don't so fight, fight amongst yourselves. It's okay. It's okay. That's right. Yeah, you put your team up there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then Becca's doing 1st Second Corinthians. I'm going to come back with Matthew, and then we're going to figure the rest of these out before the end of the semester. So, so the next little bit, so James, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, the next four weeks. And like I said, we're going to just try to put them in their culture, look at what's their, you know, who wrote them, who, to whom did they, they write, why was it written, and kind of what's the main theme of each book. We're obviously not going to be able to get down to the micro detail, 
because we got 45 minutes to do it. But I'll, when you get down, I want you to have a framework that you can lay all the books of the New Testament down. So you can say, all right, you know. And then you can also understand that, like, when people talk about, for instance, uh, right now women's role in lead church leadership is a huge deal. I read a paper the other day that they talked about that Paul overruled himself because in you know, Galatians it says there's no no Jew, no Gentile, no male, no female, uh, and they they use that to overrun his Titus and Timothy parts. But when you look at that, you go, wait a minute. They go, Paul was more enlightened when he wrote Galatians. You go, no, he wrote Galatians because Timothy and Titus are down here. He wrote Galatians 15 years before he wrote Titus and Timothy. So when you look at arguments, current arguments and papers and, and discussions, you have to know when, when were the books written and what order were they written in because uh, you look at theology and you look at statements and, and you have to understand which came first, Galatians or Titus, in that particular order. So this is what we have for the next uh, couple months through the 19th. So for this semester, we should get through the book of Acts. So if you like it, if you like one of those books, come that week. If you don't like that book, skip that one. <laughs> <laughs> Just like uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, did his own uh, edition of the New Testament. He cut out the books he did not like. <laughs> and so his New Testament only had 13 books. <laughs> All right, thanks. See you next week.